I'm Iris McAlpin, and you're listening to Pure Curiosity, an exploration of the human experience and what it takes to be mentally healthy in our modern world. Sweet. All, All right. right. Well, so how are you? I'm good. Good. How are you? I'm doing well. I just got back from Burning Man. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'm starting to feel rested after a few days of sleep. (laughs) (laughs) And um, yeah, I'm just, I'm really excited to be talking to you about a lot of different things. I started reading your dissertation and so I definitely want to dig into that. But before we do, if you wouldn't mind just giving us a little intro of who you are and what you do. Sure. Well, I live in Northern California, a couple hours north of San Francisco, and a small town kind of in wine country. And I, uh, I do a bunch of different things. I'm a professor at several different colleges up here, and I am also a somatic-oriented psychotherapist, so I have a private practice I've had for years used to work with in, in community mental health with families and children. And, but my, my real passion is working with trauma. I was uh, initially somatic, somatically trained in somatic experiencing. Um, and then I got trained with my mentor, uh, Larry Heller, who developed NARM, the Neuroeffective Relational Model. So I work in both uh, shock trauma and developmental trauma. Somatic experiencing is more in the direction of shock trauma generally, and uh, NARM, neuroeffective relational model, is more focused on relational trauma, developmental trauma. And that's kind of where my, my career has been going recently, is doing more trainings for professionals and even for the public, just in this whole trauma-informed movement and bringing this really exciting work into the world for how to address complex trauma. Yeah, and I can say... Firsthand, you are an excellent teacher, and I've really enjoyed learning from you these past few months. And just to kind of get started with a few definitions, if you wouldn't mind telling people what the difference between shock trauma and relational trauma is. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny because I'm in this little bubble of this world of (laughs) trauma, and so it's actually a really quite contentious debate sometimes because, you know, for the last 35 years, almost 40 years now, we've had this one definition of trauma, which is everyone pretty much recognizes now, which is uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. And it was so important that that came on board in 1980, because before that, there was no diagnosis for trauma. So, you know, in the old days, they would just say you had hysteria or, you know, all sorts of things that were not okay, pathologizing reactions to abnormal situations, which is really what PTSD is all about. So so that that diagnosis came about, and then for the last 35, 40 years, that's been shaping our field of trauma. But, you know, those of us that have been in this for a while, um, we, you know, some of us have recognized that there's what's referred to as, as complex trauma, or sometimes just more specifically re- referred to as developmental trauma, which isn't necessarily, you know, what's referred to as PTSD, which is a shock trauma. It's like not like a life and death threatening event, like going to war or being, you know, assaulted or being in a car accident. Like those are experiences that people 
develop PTSD after because they're immediate threats to our life. But, you know, so many of us grew up in environments where there was a lot of shame, a lot of guilt. We weren't, you know, maybe there was abuse or neglect. And I think just culturally, children are growing up in an environment where they're not getting all their needs met. And so that can then lead to this other, it's like other circuitry, other brain circuits uh, that are involved with developmental trauma. And it, this diagnosis isn't even around yet. I mean, it's been proposed in the World Health Organization uh, to have a new diagnosis called CPTSD, which is complex post-traumatic stress disorder, but it's not even fully formed yet. So that's why I said it's kind of contentious in the trauma field because people say that they're really one and the same thing. Um, trauma is just trauma, but there's people that are really starting to identify that there actually are very important distinctions between event trauma or shock trauma versus more relational or developmental trauma. And that's been a big part of my career of like learning about that and then starting to teach that and, and do some writing about that. And really it's gone. I mean, this has been around for a long time, but um, it's really hit a certain kind of threshold now where people are really understanding the need to address uh, complex trauma. Do you have a sense of what is causing this shift in our sort of collective consciousness around trauma? That's a great question. Um, hmm. I mean, I'm very happy well, for it. <laughs> I mean, it's... Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, there's a number of ways I guess I could answer it. I mean, this is a little bit more of a sterile, like my professor mind answering it, but there was a big study done uh, about 20 years ago called the ACEs study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. And the data from that research study has really influenced our field and now even our society, like Oprah learned about the ACEs study, Oprah Winfrey learned about the ACEs study and has made it like one of her life missions now to bring a more trauma-informed perspective into our society, into schools and things like this. So that, that research study had a really big impact. I mean, one of the most famous TED Talks was uh, Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris. Yes. Um, you know, she introduced uh, the ACEs study. She's done incredible work on uh, community, underserved communities and children, identifying unresolved trauma at the, at the root of not only psychological and behavioral disorders, but also medical issues, medical symptoms and syndromes. So I think that's part of it. I think we're just getting more evolved and more sophisticated. I mean, even mental health, it was such a stigma. Even 15, 20 years ago to say you were seeing a shrink, right? Um, And now, I was just last night watching a show on HBO, uh, a bunch of professional athletes, and um, it's actually LeBron James does a show uh, called The The Shop, and it's a bunch of professional athletes that get together and talk about different issues. And it was primarily on recognizing mental illness and talking about a couple of these guys were talking about their experiences growing up in inner city environments and how much shame and stigma and weakness was associated with that. And the fact that they just experienced so much incredible trauma growing up and to have kind of an understanding that that impacts us as we get older and that we can actually do something about it. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean that we're weak. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It means that we're finding ways that we can really strengthen ourselves. Um, 
So I, I think, you know, it's just like our society is changing a lot. Yeah, my understanding is that I believe it's the NBA is now required to have, like each team is required to have a mental health professional on staff now, which exactly. is incredible. Which it's really amazing. happy to hear that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and something that Nadine Barqueras talks about that I'm sure you can speak to in more detail that was eye-opening for me when I first started learning more about developmental trauma is this idea that the younger we are, the more social rejection can feel life-threatening. You were talking about, you know, shock trauma versus relational trauma. And something that I didn't know was that, you know, as far as our nervous systems are concerned, oftentimes our body responds the same way, especially when we're, we're young and developing. Yep. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Cause I'm sure you know more about it than I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it sounds like, you know, a lot actually. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, developmentally we have all these critical stages of brain development and so much of what we know about the brain developing is that it's dependent on our environment. So, you know, the old days, I'm sure most people listening took at least one psychology class in high school or college. And, you know, that you learned about this big debate that's gone on forever in psychology between nature and nurture. And we, we don't even look at it that way anymore. It's like nature happens through nurture, hmm. which, which means that like we have these, um, you know, genetic programs or sequences, but that our environment actually is shaping the development of our nature, the development of who we are and who we're going to become. And so we go through these different um, stages of development. And if we've had, you know, secure enough support from our environment, from our caregivers, then it's going to kind of wire our brain and nervous system, our bodies in a, a direction towards greater organization, greater balance, greater health. And if we haven't, and there's been all different kinds of trauma again like whether that was a shock trauma event like a child had to be you know go through 20 surgeries in the first six months of their life or if it's more of a uh, relational trauma where maybe the child just wasn't you know receiving the kind of support it he or she needed from their environment those things are going to impact the, the the way that the brain is starting to organize itself and and that all these circuits are getting laid down and that then can lead, that's what the ACEs study was all about, is about that how when we've had these, they call them, they, they, they do this whole score, like how many ACEs does someone have out of 10? And so the more adverse childhood experiences we've had, the higher our likelihood is that our brain will be dysregulated in such a way that that's going to lead later on to different behavioral, psychological, uh, physical or medical disorders that then are going to lead people to, you know, not be in good shape and be potentially coming into mental health services or a lot of these people end up going into criminal justice because they're, they're not being, uh, their trauma is not being addressed and it's being manifested in aggressive or impulsive behavior. So it, it really is an epidemic. I mean, I really look at it like we're at this really critical point in our society maybe like 70 years ago, whatever, when they found the polio vaccine, it's like we're, we're at this place that like everyone is being exposed to, you know, developmental trauma, complex trauma. And just like we have to address what's going on in the environment right now, we have to address what's happening with this epidemic and how to help our 
our children and help ourselves so that we can can heal this. Yeah, there's so much here and it's going to take me a minute to figure out how I want to start teasing this apart with you because on one hand, I have this desire really to help people understand that most of us experience trauma and it's not this desire to just label everyone as traumatized, but it provides a basis for us to start to heal when we start to understand what what is traumatic for a developing mind. But then also this idea, and you talk about this in your dissertation quite a bit, this idea of a trauma-based society. Yeah. And so we're dealing with this on a personal level. We're dealing with this on a social and societal level. And it's kind of hard for me to know where to begin tackling this issue with you because I know you have so much to say. But maybe the place to begin is to talk about what it means to have a trauma-based society. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my topic of my thesis was called trauma and civilization. So it's, you can't get much bigger topic than that. I guess you could say trauma in the universe or something, but (laughs) it's it's a big one. It's a huge topic. And I just think that built into everything, you know, is unresolved trauma. Uh, I, I really have, I mean, I did quite a bit of research, but I also just have a strong personal belief that you know, we're designed to live a different way, which is actually much closer to animals in the wild and their natural habitat than the way that we look now, where there's just so much disconnection in our society. And, you know, I know every culture is different, but there's just a lot of ways that we're really disconnected from each other. And that's not how humans are designed. We're designed to be in relationship. We're designed to be collaborative. We wouldn't have gotten this far in evolution had we not been supporting each other and the focus on you know the ways that we're so different and separated through politics religion uh all the different social issues really is kind of reinforcing the disconnection that then leads to us living in a society that is filled with trauma and then that we pass that down to our to, to the next generation and it's, it's, it really is tragic on one hand when we start to dive into it because it's just getting more and more kind of, well, I don't know if it's getting more extreme. It's, it's just speeding up a lot. Yeah, I read yesterday that 46% of the U.S. population reports feeling lonely on a regular basis. And it's, it's really easy to like point at social media and technology. I'm sure that that's one of many factors, but it seems like these traumas that we inevitably experienced growing up over the course of millennia maybe are just being made worse in a sense by the cultural disconnection that we're feeling. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's like, it goes both ways. It's like we create, we create things that then end up (laughs) reinforcing our disconnection. Well, we create things out of disconnection that end up then reinforcing our disconnection. Like, you, you know, that in, in the NARM training, we talk about like, anything can really serve either connection or disconnection. So um, that's what we're looking at clinically when we're working with people. It's like what, like, cause I, I, I don't, I'm not a person that likes to throw out the baby with the bathwater. So it's like, I think there are ways that, that social media and uh, technology can serve connection. I just don't think that that's how it's being mostly used right now. And 
So instead of kind of getting black and white, which is like, oh, no children should be, you know, should be looking at a screen until they're, you know, 20 years old or whatever, because their <laughs> prefrontal areas aren't developed. It's like, well, first of all, that's not so realistic in our society. But second of all, it's actually much more useful to support children as they're growing up to learn how they can use these things for uh, connection as opposed to just fostering disconnection. That is a critical distinction. Yeah. And it's been interesting. You know, I do a lot of work on Instagram and as a result of that, I'm sort of on it quite a bit and I just have to even check that for myself. Sometimes I notice myself using it in a way you know, doing the comparison game in ways that are fostering my own sort of disconnection. And then sometimes I'm really deeply connecting with people and having meaningful conversations on there. And I think maintaining a, a balance can be can be tricky, especially, I mean, I honestly don't even want to know what would have happened if I had had it when I was, you know, 12 years old. I think, <laughs> I think it could have been pretty scary for me. But um, this idea that civilization as we know it I think because we were born into it and because it is what feels normal to us we often don't really think about the fact that it as far as the scope of human history it's not really normal at all mm -hmm. and that was something you talked about again yep. um, and something I'd be interested to to talk about more just because I think a lot of us walk around with this feeling of something's not quite right here Mm -hmm. Like something feels off and yep. and I think some of your work speaks to that. So can you talk about that for a moment? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, again, like I said, I think I, I, humans are wired, you know, to be connected. And part of that is that, you know, when you're born, born into a world where your needs are being met and there's a community that you're belonging to from the very beginning that welcomes you and receives you and, and provides the right kind of support for you, then there's just an implicit trust that the world is a place that's going to be bountiful, that's going to be uh, supporting your abundance and, and, and your growth, and not a place that you have to then scrap for limited resources. Like, I really believe that that comes out of our disconnection from the earth and from our more tribal way of living that, um, you know, was earlier in our evolution. And that when that starts to break down, when we stop having these kind of implicit trust that our environment uh, will be taking care of us, then what gets replaced in that is fear and all of the different strategies then that are associated with fear. One of the big ones is that we end up disconnecting to protect ourselves and we use all sorts of strategies um, to do that. And that's kind of, you mentioned uh, the healing developmental trauma book. That's what, that's what NARM is based on. It, Dr. Larry Heller, who created NARM, he talks about kind of the five survival styles that are developmentally um, created and that each of those different stages of development will lead to different strategies that we end up using to kind of protect ourselves. But ultimately, it, yes, it does serve to protect us as children, but ultimately it ends up kind of reinforcing our disconnection. And then we can't show up in the world in a way that's going to be really meaningful for us. I mean, your, your podcast title is great. It's, you know, Pure Curiosity. <laughs> and I mean, you know, because you're in our trainings, but you know that NARM is 
really fundamentally based on curiosity because curiosity is the antidote to shame and, and to fear that I mean, I talk about this like in terms of the amygdala. For those of you, those of your listeners that know about the amygdala, the amygdala is often in the literature talked about as the fear response center of the brain. So it's like it's like the smoke detector of the brain. So if there's something in the environment that um, that leads us to feel afraid, then it triggers this whole sequence of fight, flight, and freeze reactions. It's called the HPA axis. It turns on our brain and nervous system that allows us to react to a threat in the environment. But see, what people don't really know enough is that the amygdala, that's only one part of the amygdala. The amygdala is really a novelty center of the brain, which means that when there's something new in our environment, we are drawn to it. And so it can go in two directions. We're either drawn to something new and then have a reaction of fear, or we're drawn to something new and we're curious about it. We want to learn more about it. We want to move closer to it. And so like racism is like the perfect example. Like, okay, we have different skin colors and, or you have a different, you're meeting someone from a different culture and they have a different kind of language or a religious practice. Like there's two ways that we can show up with that person. We can either show up in fear or we can show up and be curious and be drawn to learning more about this person and understanding the similarities and the differences and being able to hold that without going into the fear circuits. And that's really what we're trying to foster in, in NARM is to support people to kind of re-inhabit those, cir those circuits that have been hijacked by early trauma that are pumping, that pumping into us that every new experience is going to be filtered through the shame and fear circuits and not through curiosity and connection. Something I've wondered about recently, just listening to a number of different interviews about the sort of phenomenon of snowplow parenting or helicopter parenting. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if you're aware of any research that talks about the impact of that type of parenting on a child's ability to approach things with curiosity rather than fear. I mean, intuitively, it seems like, you know, if your parent is trying to keep you in this hermetically sealed bubble all the time that you might have more fear responses, but I don't know if there's any actual evidence to suggest that. Uh, you know, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not familiar with that. I mean, what I do know is that culturally there's been a big shift uh, that, you know, 40, 50 years ago it was quite the opposite. It it's was like, like free range kids, right? Yeah. Children were to be you know, <laughs> seen and not heard. And now it's like parents are involved with every little step of everything with their children. And I think both have, uh, you know, pros and cons. And it's like anything in our society, we tend to get really polarized and stuff. But but I, I, I do I do think there's damage that happens because we're not raising a generation of children that are learning how to tolerate distress. Like the example the example I give is like this is not so long ago. This is like ten years ago. You know, we used to all have to sit at the uh, forty five minute line in the post office and sit there and do nothing. Like we had to just <laughs> tolerate our distress. And sometimes you chat with someone, sometimes you just sit there and be present and be annoyed or whatever. And like those moments are so rarely happening anymore because we're now occupied so much uh, that if we do get in situations like this, 
like I'm going on a, uh, on a, like a five hour plane ride tomorrow. And I was like busy, like obsessively downloading all my Netflix stuff. Last night. <laughs> so I wouldn't have one moment of, of non occupation, <laughs> um, which, you know, it's just like, we're all pulled into this yes. and, and it's really, you know, I think that is part of what we're creating in this next generation. But, but also we want to be careful because what was happening in the past also wasn't always a hundred percent positive either. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I just want to share this sort of yeah. interesting thing that happens every few weeks. Uh, my my husband, as you know, runs spas that has float therapy, sensory deprivation yeah. float tanks. And every so often, most of the time people come in, have a wonderful experience, but every now and again, people will basically run out of there, just like <laughs> bolt out because they get into the pod, which is, you know, dark and quiet and you're alone with your thoughts. And after five minutes, it's just intolerable. And, and I, I've been there myself. I've had floats where it's really difficult to just be alone with my thoughts. It's, you know, it's yeah. not like you have to be, you know, super enlightened to float, but it's interesting that, it can be really distressing for us to be left alone with our thoughts these days. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I uh, was much more active in the somatic experiencing community, they, they used to bring us in to different, uh, what well, we were being invited into different meditation centers because one of the things they were finding is that people that were on these long-term meditation retreats, silent meditation retreats, you know, 30 days or even shorter sometimes, 10, 15 days, that people were having kind of decompensation states, like they were even psychotic breaks sometimes. People were having really difficult times because when we take away all of our stimulation, including talking, including movement, um, our brain, you know, it, it has to reset itself. And for some people that have a lot of unresolved trauma, that can be really overwhelming. Yeah, that's interesting. I've I've only done ten days in silence, but um, I definitely got a flavor of that. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was pretty intense. So you've mentioned somatic experiencing and NARM, and you've talked a little bit more about what NARM is. But I would just love to pretend for a moment that I've never heard of it and <laughs> have no idea what it is. How do you describe NARM to people? Well, uh, let's see. You know, NARM is a model for working with early trauma, with attachments, uh, relational developmental trauma. So basically, children are born into the world with certain needs. And when those needs either aren't met or there's certain other kinds of disruptions through their early development, then children have to adapt and th that that adaptation those adaptations come with a cost and the cost is generally um pretty disorganized internal systems like the brain and the nervous system become pretty disorganized and so if that goes left unaddressed then eventually it's going to start showing up as symptoms and you see that i used to work with kids so you'd see that with kids where they start having learning difficulties or adhd behaviors or conduct issues um and then you see that as they move into teenage years where they start getting into more problems with substances or with criminal behavior gang behavior um violence promiscuity things like this uh, and then, of course, you see this with adults all over the place because <laughs> our whole society is kind of based on this where we're living in a pretty unbalanced society 
where there's workaholism, there's substance abuse, there's violence, there's, um, and those are kind of more the things we can point to, but the more subtle things is the way that we just live in a very harsh society where it's not really safe to be authentic and to show up with vulnerability and from our heart. And that leads to more disconnection. So, so the neuroaffective relational model is a model that helps us to kind of create a framework or a map for how this early trauma gets laid down for, for children and then moving into adulthood and then a clinical um, approach for helping Right now, it's really designed for adults, although we're working on designing uh, the model to make it more applicable for children. But uh, it's really designed for, I would say, adolescents, older adolescents and then adults, um, about how to help them to shift out of these states of early trauma that are still left over, doesn't matter if they're 20 years old or 90 years old, and to move more into their... uh, their basic functioning, the, you know, the basic organization that is really waiting to come back in line. It's just been disrupted, uh, for so many years. And just, just in case somebody is hung up on the word organization, um, when you talk about organization in this context, what do you mean by that? Yeah, it, well, it's like if you go into an orchestra, right? And it's like, the, you know, the moment before they start playing, the conductor starts playing, like everyone's just playing their instruments, like just blowing different sounds or it, they're, they're warming up. And it's like that that's called cacophony. It's like when there's, you know, as opposed to synchro, you know, synchronicity or symphony, which is when all the music is playing together. Uh, symphony is the word I was looking for. And, uh, and, uh, that, that's kind of what happens with the brain. It's like when the brain isn't working together, there's disorganization. And so the, the outward expressions of that disorganization are symptoms. So when you're having anxiety, when you're having depression, when you're having sleep issues, sexual issues, all sorts of physical issues, that that's a, that's a sign of the different parts of your brain and body that aren't working in uh, a coherent kind of organized fashion. And so we're supporting, we're looking how to support our clients to find more uh, balance and organization. And I mean, if we're going to start looking like at the brain structures and stuff, there actually is like a conductor of the brain, which they call the prefrontal area of the brain. And NARM is a model for supporting this prefrontal area to get more, I don't know, stimulated, to, to bring it more online again. Because when there's trauma, the prefrontal area is the first area that goes offline. Yeah, and I, the thing that struck me the most about NARM, I think, initially is just how well it addresses the area of self-conflict in terms of you know deeply longing for connection but being afraid of connection or wanting so badly to be successful but being afraid of success and these kinds of things that I think plague most modern adults <laughs> yeah and norm has a way of of addressing that in a way that i, I haven't really seen any modality do effectively mm-hmm. and one of the things that i think is the most beautiful things about norm is well it's really two things the, the emphasis on curiosity like you mentioned before but also the importance of consent in, mm. in the relationship. 
Can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to because I Great. think it's such it's such an important thing and it's so misunderstood in our society because, you know, I think we just have to be real here that children are not given consent in life. Like, uh, I, I, you know, I have a student that works with uh, children who have uh, severe physical medical disorders. And so these are children that are getting multiple, multiple surgeries by the time they're like four years old, three years old. And, you know, she talks about just how the doctors and nurses and, and these people, of course, are the most well-meaning people. And, and yet they're doing all this invasive stuff to children without ever creating a sense of, of safety for the child that, you know, hey, we're going to do this really scary, overwhelming thing for you. But, you know, how can we get the child to feel safe and be in relationship um, even when they're going to be going through things like this? And so that that's like that's just an extreme example. But for so many of us as children, we just weren't really given uh, a sense that we had a relationship to ourselves where we could make a determination what's good and what's not good for ourselves. And then we bring this into uh, adulthood. And, you know, one of the things that happens, and again, this is like really well-meaning, like, so I'm not trying to like, you know, bash anyone because, you know, it's really well-meaning, but as a therapist, as any kind of, any kind of helper, you know, what we're doing is we're tuning into our client's distress and we really want to help them as much as we can but see, what happens sometimes is that then we skip over the consent stage so that we pull out all of our tool belt and all of our magical skills yeah. and, and we start doing these interventions to our clients, again, from the best of intentions, from a good place, but it's missing the relational piece where do we actually have consent? Do we know why we're using this intervention? Does our client know why we're using this intervention and are they okay with it? And those things are super critical in terms of not reenacting the trauma that happened to us as children, because part of the trauma that happened to us is that we had no, we were helpless. We had no agency. We, we couldn't determine what was okay for us and what was not okay for us. We were completely dependent on the environment and we don't want to reenact that in the clinical process. And so that consent piece become it well so that's important for the client's end and then it's also important for us as therapists because the it it, it directs us to where the client really feels is going to be the heart of the matter for them so in, instead of us just chasing all sorts of symptoms because we have all these different skills or techniques it really helps it it makes it much easier for us i'm, I'm sure you've seen this in the training Absolutely. it may yeah it just simplifies it because instead of us having to figure be so smart and figure everything out it's like, well, the client is is telling us very clearly, you know, what it is that they really want and what they're okay with how we interact around that. So it just becomes a really big piece. The R and NARM, the relational part, the neuroaffective relational model, that R and NARM is such a critical piece because when you're working with relational trauma, the the helper, the therapist is a part of the healing process. Yeah, and I think it's you know, sort of a vestige of that do as I say, not as I do type of parenting that therapy for a time and, and certainly not all therapists were like this, but um, I've certainly had personal experience with therapists that are, are more dictating what needs to be done rather than asking what needs to be done, especially when it comes to um, 
more like crisis intervention type of scenarios. And I just think it's incredibly refreshing the amount of, I guess for lack of better terms, like humanity that's present in NARM, that it just allows a lot more space for an actual relationship to unfold in a way that feels, you know, still has a lot of boundaries, but is very healthy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to really mess up this story probably, but, uh, (laughs) you know, I know 20 years ago, a long time ago, you know, I got introduced to this, uh, this show that it was a really big show in the late eighties, early nineties. It was on PBS. Bill Moyers did it and it was called, oh God, the body and the mind or something. It was like, I don't remember what it was called, but it was something about, it was one of the first things that he was really introducing. Like he introduced acupuncture. It was like a six or 10 series, um, show, you know, series of shows, uh, about different body mind things, which was still very revolutionary at that point in, in our uh, culture. And there was one thing that really stood out for me about that. Well, many things, but one thing really stood out for me in terms of that there was some hospital that, uh, did this thing where, they gave every patient a button and that button, if they press the button, that would, that would, um, release the, uh, the opiates into their system. So the pain meds into their system, as opposed to having to wait until the doctors and nurses would come around on their rounds, check their levels, and then give them the pain medications. And they, they realized like significantly different that the people that had the control over how much pain medication they were giving themselves was so dramatically less than when they were dependent. Yeah. Then, then when they were dependent on the doctors and nurses, because there's something, again, it goes back to the consent piece. There's something about giving people their autonomy back, like their, their ability to make the determination for themselves that when they were able to do that, then they actually didn't need it as much, which I just thought was fascinating. And in some ways, you know, that's kind of the way I look at it in NARM. It's like we're not getting into power struggles with our clients because I don't, I don't need anything from my client. Like I'm not trying to get something out of my client. Like I'm there to support them based on what it is that they want for themselves. And if that changes, then that changes. And then we can re-consent around a new direction that we're going to go, go down. And just being on the receiving end of that, I know how – for me, that feels so uh, respectful. Yeah, it really does. And I'm curious how you found yourself, you know, lead trainer for NARM. And we can go all the way back if you like. I have no real agenda for this. I'm just curious how you found this in the first place because it's still relatively underground, I would say, hopefully less and less every year. But um, Mm -hmm. how did you discover this? So when I, I came into somatic experiencing, well, let me, I'll even back up further. So I, I uh, before I became a, a psychotherapist, I was a uh, humanitarian aid worker. And so I worked in Asia with Burmese refugees and I was influenced in a number of ways by that experience. And one of the ways is I developed secondary PTSD. I was really pretty, uh, pretty shaken up by that experience that I, uh, living with the Burmese and being uh, really connected to their community and just kind of hearing the stories and watching what was happening. And the second thing is I was just really amazed by the fact that they were able to transgenerationally go through so much trauma and still, you know, stay pretty balanced as a community, as communities, as, um, 
you know, I, I know that there was a lot of negative things that also were going on, but, you know, I just kept on thinking back to our culture that th- they had something that we've lost in our culture. And I wanted to really understand what that was. And so I came back to the States primarily to heal myself, but also to kind of answer that question, like what, what is it that we've lost that uh, humans have had? Because we've always been dealing with trauma. There's always been threats forever being on this planet, but we wouldn't have made it this far had we not had some ways to manage the, the trauma. So what have we lost in our society? And so I kind of stumbled upon what I felt like was the answer, and I still do feel like it's the answer, which is that there's really two main things that that we've lost in Western society that are, number one, is that all the kind of healing rituals that uh, more traditional communities used had some element of including the body in them. So whether that was dancing or chanting or even the way they they do storytelling in other societies, it's much more of kind of the whole body is involved in it. There's like role playing that's involved. And they don't just kind of tell disembodied stories, intellectual stories. Like there's something about the body that helps to process trauma. And I think that humans have known that forever. So that's number one. And number two is that they they do their healing in community. And they don't have the same level of, of isolation that happens. Like, I, I, I mean, even me as a, as a psychotherapist in private practice, like, people come into my office and I, like, lock the door, I pull the shades down. <laughs> you know, it's just like, yeah. this is not how humans were designed to kind of heal trauma, I don't believe. I, I believe it was really about the community coming together. And so I wanted to find a model that was going to have both embodiment as part of it and the relational piece as part of it. And I really struggled finding a psychotherapy model that felt home to me. So when I got introduced to somatic experiencing, I was really excited. And I, um, somatic experiencing is a model developed by Dr. Peter Levine that really is actually based a lot on studying wild animals and their natural habitats and how they are able to work through traumatic experiences. And it's, it's a very deeply body-based uh, approach. And I found it uh, to really be effective, particularly at working with PTSD, with shock trauma. And, but my teacher in somatic experiencing was Dr. Lawrence Heller, who was teaching us in the training also not just about working with PTSD and shock trauma, but also working with attachment and relational and developmental trauma. And so he, you know, became an influential mentor of mine. And he eventually created his own model of of really specifically working with complex trauma. And he left uh, the somatic experiencing organization and created his own trainings, which is again called NARM. And um, I started, you know, kind of assisting with him and then eventually started to teach with him because, you know, he had been such an influential role uh, for me. And also um, the work really is aligned with with my belief that we need a model that has both the embodiment and the relational piece at the at the core of working with this this kind of trauma. I don't think I knew that that he was an, a somatic experiencing person first. That's very interesting. It makes sense. It makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense. 
Well, actually, he's been around. I mean, he's almost been around this field for 50 years. So he originally started in what was called Neo-Reichian work back in the 70s, which was, you know, back in those days, the work was much more cathartic. So right. they were doing all sorts of, you know, bioenergetic exercises, primal scream exercises, uh, sitting in the hot seat. There was a lot of pretty dramatic stuff going on. <laughs> and he eventually went back and got trained as a psychodynamic-oriented um, psychologist, which kind of gave him much more training in working with attachment and working with what we call the top-down element uh, of NARM. And then eventually, he really started to integrate both this more top-down orientation with the more bottom-up orientation from his somatic background. And uh, and that, for me, also feels very organizing. And I, I like having, you know, both the orientation of how we work with the body, but also how we work with kind of the self. And so to me, that feels like it really aligns with me. Yeah, I feel like I've probably talked about this on other podcasts in the past, but it it is just so striking to me how, and I'll just speak for myself, how profoundly disconnected from my body I was without even realizing it for most mm -hmm. of my life. And I think that that's, true for a lot of people and I do wonder and again this is very much in the realm of speculation but um, I think I mentioned to you that I was going to be having a conversation with the founder of a retreat that I had been to that does a lot of cathartic based work about some some I guess you could say like very activating experiences or triggering experiences that I had during that process and in the course of my conversation with her, she shared that, you know, back in the 70s, they were doing this, this same sort of cathartic based work and, and it seemed to be going really well. They didn't really have a lot of complaints, but in the last few years, more and more people are, are having these really intense reactions to cathartic based therapy. And I, I sort of wonder if our continued disconnection from our bodies is sort of amplifying some of the effects. It just feels like plugging yourself into a socket for the first time. If you've been mm -hmm. completely disconnected and all of a sudden you're connected and it's like, Whoa, what the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that could be, be a big part of it. I, I think another part of it, I would kind of argue a little bit with her because I think another part of it is that we didn't understand uh, dissociation. We mm. didn't understand the freeze response. So what happened, this is really, it's fascinating how Peter Levine created somatic experiencing because part of it came from him being part of a lot of these cathartic experiences in the late sixties, early seventies. And he, re he was watching people. He's, he's such a keen observer of people. So he was watching people have these incredibly, you know, cathartic experiences and they would be blissed out. They would like, I mean, people would have these amazing feelings after. It's like being uh, high, like to, a, yeah, it's extremely euphoric. It seemed extremely euphoric. Exactly. People would call it orgasmic and stuff. Like they were having this really intense experiences, very positive experiences. But then he would watch them two or three or four days later. And there was almost always a, a intense rebound effect where people would decompensate. And, and then where it gets really interesting is people start to get addicted to needing that kind of high, high arousal state so they can feel alive because every time they move out of that, they start to feel dead again inside. 
And see, they what was happening in the early days is that they didn't understand the nature of dissociation and the freeze response and, and what numbing, the role numbing plays in it. So teachers might have seen people walk away in these really blissed out states, but not understood then what comes next is that when people are numb and disconnected, they don't know they're numb and disconnected. That's the nature that's the nature of dissociation is that when you're really dissociated, you don't know how dissociated you are. It's only after you become more connected again that you start to realize how disconnected you truly were. And so I think part of what you're pointing to about or your, your teacher was pointing to is that I think people are just getting more educated hmm. that like, you know what, I would because you see this with sex, too. Like, you, I mean, it's, you see this in a lot of different areas. It's like. I talk about, I don't think I've talked about this yet in our training, but I talk a lot about how in our society we think of sex and I call it mechanical sex versus intimate sex. And like people have, I, I, I've worked with couples that hate each other. Like they literally, with every ounce in their body will hate each other. And then I ask them about their sex, you know, their, their sexual life. Oh my God, we have amazing sex. That's, <laughs> that, you know, that's what, that's what keeps us together. And it's like what they're describing is is what I call mechanical sex. And mechanical sex is disconnected sex. It doesn't mean that it doesn't feel really good and that people can have these really high states, but that is not serving connection. And that's, you know, again, when we don't understand the role of disconnection through dissociation, through numbness, through the freeze response, then we might see these things as like, oh, it's good that they're still having this really great sex life, but see, from my perspective, that that sex life that they're having actually could be reinforcing their disconnection. Yeah, and just for the sake of clarity, when you're talking about dissociation here, a lot of people think of like out-of-body experiences, which is maybe the, a more extreme form, yeah. but how are you defining dissociation? Yeah, exactly. That's the more extreme form is where people are just completely uh, you know, out of their body. I mean, you see it with multiple personality disorder where people literally have Person, parts of their personality that are disconnected from other parts and don't even know they exist. Or if they do know they exist, they, they're not uh, relating to them um, as one personality. So that's more the extreme end. But a, a much you know less extreme end is just like we, we're just not fully present with an experience, you know, like we're, we're, you know, we've all gone through experiences where we feel like we just go through the motions, but we're not really there we're not really feeling the experience. Um, and that that's kind of a more low-grade form of dissociation. Now, with, when we start talking about trauma, we're starting to talk about more extreme, um, extreme expressions of dissociation is that, you know, when, when we're not able to successfully fight or flight, like let's say we're driving in a car and we see a truck coming at us and there's no option, you can't fight that truck away, and we don't have enough time to get away from the truck, our body and our brain goes into a, a shutdown state, which is a dissociative state. And it's actually a life-saving state. Um, it helps us to bear the unbearable. And it, go, it goes all the way back to animals and um, very early in our evolution in terms of animals where they uh, you know, would – would basically conserve it, it's like a very deep shutting down state to conserve their just enough of their life that they can get through an experience with the hope that they're when they get through the experience they can come back into life and 
You see this with like possums, for example, where they playing dead and stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Playing dead. And, but the problem for humans is that with animals, they can come out of it after with humans, we have a much more difficult time coming out of these shutdown free states. And so that's why working with trauma, it's so important to find ways that you can help people come back into connection with their bodies without overwhelming them. And from our perspective, I'm not saying it's the right perspective. I'm just saying from our perspective, um, when you do these really cathartic, more high energy states, it can, it can blow people out of the water. It can actually serve to further disconnect them. Not everyone, not everyone, sure. but, but a lot of people, particularly people that have had a lot of early trauma, they need more what we call titrated approaches, which they need models that are going to help them uh, re-inhabit their body in a much more gentle and safe way. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because I was somebody who was very much, I can just go ahead and use the word addicted to the more intense personal development modalities for a while because it really felt, you know, I had been stuck in therapy for many, many years, just not really getting a lot of progress. I think I just hadn't found the right fit. And, you know, I find these more like new agey um, personal development programs that are very aggressive and you know, it just kind of blew me out of the water in this way that it first felt really, really good. And, you know, was seeing some measurable progress, and, you know, and I got kind of hooked on the intensity. And over time, just going through those massive expansion contraction cycles, I've started to appreciate the the more subtle versions of healing that are available. Yeah. And, um, but I, I get why people are, are drawn to that. It feels dramatic. Yeah. It feels really good in the moment. And I also think that sometimes slow and steady wins the race, I guess, for lack of better terms. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, everyone's unique. Everyone is different. So it's not like one size fits all. But I, I do think, you know, what you're saying is a pretty common experience that I've had with my clients over the years and people that I've worked with is that, you know, they're the, the subtlety you know, I just, the word that keeps on popping in my mind is intimacy. It's like there's more intimacy available when you're not going through such high extreme states. And when you do things in a more gentle, uh, intentional way, there's a lot more room for intimacy, whether that's intimacy with other people or with yourself. And when we're just kind of going for all these really high, you know, high energy experiences, Sometimes that doesn't actually help us to find the connection and intimacy that we're really looking for. Yeah, I agree. Um, and again, it's not to knock those modalities at all. It's just, yeah, it's just been my my own evolution, and uh, I I appreciate deeply the amount of subtlety and complexity that's present in NARM in a way that would take quite a bit of time to articulate, so I'm not going to go into that. But um, <laughs> yeah. one thing I wanted to make sure that we discuss, I think it it really is the most hopeful aspect of all of this to me, is this idea that I've heard you talk about in a, in a number of cases, is the idea of trauma as awakening mm -hmm. and how it can be a vehicle for our, our collective transformation and our personal transformation. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be in this work if I didn't have that as my ground, because otherwise it would be way too depressing. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I love this 
kind of uh, idea that there's there's two pathways of trauma. You know, there's one that, you know, it becomes a crisis and it, it, it takes us down. But there's this other that it becomes an opportunity for reorganization and transformation. And I mean, you know, I use this analogy a lot, but I love the analogy of the caterpillar going into yeah. the the cocoon. It's like that. It's a really if you think about it, like that's a really potentially incredibly traumatizing experience for that caterpillar like the caterpillar literally disintegrates into gel and i mean like that is really crazy and yeah and and yet it comes out and it's evolved into this really beautiful thing that now has so many more capacities and um i i look at trauma like that it's like you know people can really use these experiences to reorganize really deep brain pathways and free up an incredible amount of energy that's going towards maintaining these old patterns that lead to symptoms and use that energy then for things like creativity, productivity, intimacy, fulfillment. And I see this time and time again. Um, I think the somatic work that I've been trained in, SE and NARM, really support that. And it's just really exciting because I think, like you said, as a culture, I mean, that's that's the only thing I can like hold my hope on is that there's more people that are trained in trauma informed understanding and that eventually it starts to really take hold in our society so that we start to create every system um, from political to educational to healthcare to how we raise our children, that everything starts to be looked at through this lens of um of understanding trauma and how to support people to move through trauma, to use these experiences to actually support growth and expansion. And if we can continue to do that in this world, then I I have a lot of hope for it, you know? Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask sort of along those lines is as, as you well know, when somebody is exposed to some kind of traumatic situation or is raised in a way that is traumatic, there seem to be, well, this is an oversimplification, but two major pathways. One is a path toward resiliency and growth, and the other is a path toward re-traumatization, which, Mm -hmm. as we've seen, often happens if somebody experiences trauma at an early age, they're more likely in some cases to... Mm-hmm. have more traumatic experiences. So what are some of the the predictors or um, maybe more accurately the preventative strategies that can be put in place to help somebody move toward resilience rather than re-traumatization? Mm-hmm. You mean as like a society? It's like Yeah, I mean, well, on an individual level or a societal level, I think both are important to, to keep in mind. I think a simple place to start is by understanding the differences between behaviors and states. Mm, yeah. And and this is really important because in our society, like, let me just give you the example that I use a lot. It's like when a, this drove me crazy when my kids were young, um, <laughs> but you know, I, we'd be on an airplane or we'd be in some public situation and, you know, people are like, oh, your child's so fussy, right? Like my baby was three months old. I'm holding the baby and the baby's fussy. The baby's crying. The baby's kind of like, you know, doing all this movement with his body and stuff. And I'm, I, I just would, it would drive me crazy because it's like the baby's not being fussy. The baby is communicating. The baby has, a, has an internal experience 
and they're doing the best they can, given that he's only three months old, <laughs> to, to communicate that he needs something from his environment to help him regulate and soothe himself internally. And it's my fault. I don't understand it. I don't understand the communication. It's not his fault. So see, do you see how early that starts to get laid down, that we start to blame the child for being fussy? So we basically are then starting to shame the child's behaviors which then leads the child to feel that his or her states are actually bad and shameful. And we do this throughout child rearing, education. We do this with mental health. I mean, we do this in so many different ways. And we do this to ourselves, too. Is that like, okay, when I go and take that Ben and Jerry's pint at two in the morning and, and eat too much, and then I end up beating myself up about it, like that's a, that's a behavior, okay? And what we really want to do is bring more curiosity and learning to the behavior instead of spending all the time shaming myself and beating myself up, which gets us nowhere. Like if I can bring some understanding and curiosity and connection to that behavior, it might lead me to the state that's actually driving the behavior. Maybe that day, you know, something happened and it triggered my loneliness or my whatever, like maybe then I can start to understand that actually I needed something else that would have helped me regulate my state and then I wouldn't have to be driven to these uh, maladaptive behaviors. And the more we're able to do that, I think the more compassionate, that, that's a much more compassionate way of looking at people instead of just judging them based on all their, their different behaviors. Yeah. And something I've heard you talk about in class quite a bit is the importance of self-regulation as a parent and the impact that that has just automatically on the people that we're charged with taking care of. Yeah. 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 I mean, I always say it. It's like, you know, we needed our parents to have been regulated by their parents, right? you know, and we needed our grandparents to be regulated by their parents. Like that, it just goes all the way down the line. And, and that just didn't happen for most of us. We just weren't born into a family system where our parents felt like there was a, a people that had their back, that they, they didn't have their own community that had their back. And so their behaviors then that ended up harming us come out of that. It doesn't mean that we, for, we have to just forgive them for that because they still did harm to us. But it does give us a larger picture that you know they needed their own support so that they could be more regulated. Like even that example I gave you with like, you know, when my child was three months old, like what a different experience that would have been for me on a plane instead of having these people stare at us and like judge us for like we're bad parents for not, you know, quieting our kid down, you know, as opposed to them understanding like, wow, that's really stressful to be a parent when your kid is screaming on a plane. And, you know, what do the parents need to feel supported in this moment. And, and, you know, maybe if we would have gotten that kind of support, we could have actually been much more present to our kids, you know, and, and our society fails us in that way because we've all been failed previously. It's so true. And that's something I really get present to even at Burning Man, you know, I saw quite a few young children there that really seem to be, at least while they're there being raised by a village and it feels mm. very supportive. The children look as happy as I've ever seen little children look. It's just mm. like they're in paradise. And it's something that I've been wrestling with a lot, just how do we bring this 
back into our more normal lives and how do we start to shift this culture that's sort of designed to self-perpetuate and keep these these systems of separation in place and it's a real conundrum for me. I don't I don't have the answer aside from maybe just like running off and starting a commune or something. I don't know how practical that is. Well, your your podcast <laughs> your, your podcast is starting it. I mean, you're you're bringing people in to reflect on curiosity and I I really believe curiosity is a big antidote to this because that's where compassion can start from, that's where understanding can start from, that's where connection can It goes back to what I was saying before about the amygdala. It's like instead of reacting in our survival strategies to these different kind of triggers, we can actually start to orient to them in a new way. And I think you're seeing that that's what the NAR model is doing clinically. We're, we're, help, we're helping clients to start to orient to their own experiences in a new way. And that's what we need to, to be doing in our society, too. So I think that you, you're, you're certainly helping this whole you know, trauma-informed movement by doing these podcasts and by promoting a new way of relating to ourselves. Well, thank you. I appreciate that reflection. Yeah, it can be easy sometimes to to overlook those things that are right in front of our noses. And without getting annoying about this, one of the reasons why it's easy to overlook is because we're not treating ourselves with, you know, kindness and curiosity and compassion. We 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 think we should be further along, we think we should be better. Like that see that's part of the legacy of unresolved developmental trauma and you, I, I don't, you know, we're not going to get into a therapy session here, but you, <laughs> you know, you really are contributing in a really big way. You're going through a training that's going to give you all these advanced skills to work with clients. You're doing a public service. So, I mean, you know that the fourth pillar of NARM is about how we integrate these, these states of connection. And so it is important and we need people around us that can challenge us to be like, you know, dude, you just were the first person in your family to ever graduate from college. Like, take time to really take that in. Like, that's important. Like, that is going to help us connect further to ourselves. And and that's hard for us when we've had unresolved trauma because it's hard to relate to ourselves and give ourselves those more positive states. That's really interesting because, you know, we do live in this sort of like economy. You know, the, the more likes you get or the more followers you have. And yet a lot of us are deeply uncomfortable with, with real acknowledgement. And mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of an odd dichotomy there. Yeah. I mean, but if you really hear about these really famous people, I mean, I think Justin Bieber just came out with this thing last week on Instagram. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, which was really heartfelt. And, and I mean, this is the reality of the, is that you, you're, people are chasing this, but there's so much deep unhappiness inside of it because people, luckily he came to this pretty early in his life, but people come to a place, well, hopefully they come to a place where they realize that that's not what's going to bring us true connection and happiness. It's, it, it goes back to what we were saying before about the whole cathartic. It's like we're chasing these high energy experiences and that's not really what's going to bring us what we're most wanting for ourselves. And sometimes it takes a hard road to get there. Sometimes people don't ever get there. But uh, it's really inspiring to hear people like that who had everything on the outside and yet was so deeply disconnected and unhappy um, and, and put his life at risk, you know? Yeah, sometimes it seems like... Um... I don't know if this is, is human nature or what, but it seems like a lot of times we have to follow a road to, to its dead end <laughs> sometimes before we're able to see that it's it's not really what we were hoping it would be. Mm. 
yeah, we, we humans can be very stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. I count myself among those for sure. Um, in the interest of respecting your time, I know we've gone over an hour and I guess really what I would love to end with is if you have any resources you would like to point people toward or just something that feels like it's on your heart that you want to share to wrap up our time together. Mm, that's a really nice invitation. I mean, I, I have a ton of resources that I could kind of list off, but I mean, I think the, you can the, send me some links for those too. That's yeah. I think the more useful or thing is the invitation about like what's on my heart. And I, you know, I really feel what's most on my heart is that we live in a very harsh world and, um, I would love to see people just treating themselves, starting with treating themselves and hopefully that then extends to others, but treating themselves with more kindness and a little bit more, you know, softness and vulnerability. And I, I think that we all have this, these, these emotions in this heart for a reason. And it's to, to share love with each other and to support each other and to go through difficult experiences together. And, and, um, it, you know, it does scare me to see the disconnection that's happening in the world and in families and communities. And I just would love to see us all kind of doing our, our work to find connection to our heart so that we can be kinder towards ourselves and then bring that to our, our immediate worlds. So, you know, I, I just, I love that you're offering this and, you know, there's, there's, luckily there are a lot of other things out there, good resources that people are trying to support this. So it, it, it is, it is also a hopeful time to see people doing that. Yeah, I think so too. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, thank you.